That was his interpretation of what he heard. And that's not exactly what he but, heard. But, but the whole point of the Biggers Perry line of cases is even if the officer said, I know who did it, right. this has got to be the guy. That doesn't mean that the identification is forever barred. It does not. It does not. So when we move to those factors to determine whether or not it should be barred, and, and we had that statement before the photo, and I also want to point out to the court, there was a statement after the photo, even after the victim says, yep, I think that's him, or, or that is him. The officer then states, oh, yeah, he's done some other stuff. Right. Welcome to the Supreme Court of Virginia podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Ben Glass Law, a personal injury and long-term disability law firm with headquarters in Fairfax, Virginia. Listening to oral arguments is one of the best ways to both learn and stay abreast of the substantive and procedural aspects of practicing law in Virginia. By putting these public domain recordings into the form of a podcast, Ben Glass Law has made it easy for the public to access these recordings. All commentary that is not part of the actual court proceedings is that of the show's sponsor. Sample versus Commonwealth of Virginia, Tucker L. Watson, Appellants Counsel, Ken J. Baldessari, Assistant Attorney General, Appellees Counsel. Good morning, Your Honors. Good morning. May it please the court. My name is Tucker Watson, and I have the honor of representing Dwayne Lamont Sample Jr. in the matter currently before the court. Mr. Sample was convicted of one count of attempted robbery in the Northampton Circuit Court. This matter was appealed to the Virginia Court of Appeals on two assignments of error. I, I intend to focus the majority, if not all, of my time today on uh, the first assignment of error uh, in this matter. And, and that assignment of error had to do specifically with the denial of Sample's yeah. motion to suppress in this case. And in that motion, Sample sought to suppress Mark and Julie, one of the victims, out-of-court uh, identification, as well as not to forbid Ann Julie's in, later in-court identification of sample during the trial. Even if the out-of-court, even arguably, if the out-of-court identification was suggestive, the victim has no right to take the stand and say, actually, that is the guy that put a gun in my face. No, Your Honor. No, the answer is no, Your Honor. He, that is based on the Biggers decision. And in, if the court determines that the out-of-court identification, the procedure used to elicit that out-of-court identification was unduly suggestive, and we submit that it was in this case, then the court has to look at the, the five factors laid out in the Biggers decision to determine. From the Court of Appeals opinion, the, court, the majority opinion, states that in the Court of Appeals, you can see that the last two of the five factors, level of certainty and length of time, augur in favor of the admission of the identification. Is that accurate? I would agree with that. But I think the court needs to also look at the totality of all five factors. I don't dispute that. I'm just trying to figure out what we're, what you are arguing about. Yes, Your Honor. Thank you. And sir, going back to the whole beginning of the case, it, it really starts when the police officer arrives. Uh, the goal at that point is to find uh, who did this, to identify who did this, yeah. to get that person out of the community. The investigation is ongoing. 
what should the police officer have done in that case? Uh, he has a sense of who it is. He has a history with that person. Should he have gotten that person's photo and then seven other photos and then show it to the two gentlemen? Well, Your Honor, in this case, I think there's a number of things that could have been done to limit the suggestive nature of the manner in which he showed the photo to the victim in this case. One of the primary issues in this case were a number of statements that the law enforcement officer made to the victim. I think I have an idea of who this could be. I think it's a guy who is Hispanic. I think it's a guy who, you know, and the victim pushes back and says, no, don't think so. It didn't look Hispanic to me. The description he gave matched in age, height, weight, and eyes, correct? It did. Color of eyes, yes, correct. But age, height, and weight within a year, five pounds, an inch? Pretty close, Your Honor. Yes, this was a standard adult size male. I don't think there was anything unique. I think there's some standard adult size males up here, but we weigh and have very different heights and ages. Yes, but we have no other characteristics. This was an individual in the assailant with a hoodie, a hat, mask. We've got no other identifying factors. This is at nighttime. You said something very interesting just a moment ago, sir. You said that the victim in this case pushed back. If you take a look at the transcript, if you look at the video, it's clear that this is a man who knows what he's about. He's not going to say something that he believes is not factually correct. What does that do to the whole suggestiveness aspect of the argument on suppression? I agree with the fact that the victim expressed a degree of certainty. However, I think the court needs to look specifically at the role that the law enforcement officer played in potentially allowing that degree of certainty. The law enforcement officer is that it didn't look at all like the victim was being heavily influenced by anybody. The guy put a gun right to the guy's face, and the dad's almost like a hero. He smacks a gun down on the ground and runs the perpetrator off. We're not dealing with someone who's vulnerable to suggestion. I don't think that. First of all, I make the same statement I made to the Court of Appeals. That act of heroism is unique and pretty incredible in my experience as a criminal attorney, not only in disarming the individual, but he actually made the determination. I believe it was in a five to ten second period that the firearm, which looked, I think, to most observers like a real firearm, was a BB gun. And he knows what firearms are. He knew firearms, but he was looking specifically at the diameter of the barrel of the gun. But doesn't that suggest he's really paying attention to everything, that not only does he determine it's a BB gun, he's willing to risk his life that he's right on that. I think it speaks to the fact that for that five seconds or ten seconds or somewhere in between those two periods, he was paying attention to the gun primarily. But that's not the only evidence. There was evidence, of course, he's got on a hoodie, but he's paying attention to his eyes and his eyebrows, which he specifically mentions several times. So it's not just the gun. It's not just the height, weight, build, but what most witnesses who are looking at someone with the mask on are focusing on. He did identify the eye color and the distinctive nature of the eyes. There was some controversy about the eyebrows. He never mentioned the eyebrows in the initial encounter. Later mentioned them, I believe, in the evidence, the motion to suppress, but admitted that he had never mentioned anything about the eyebrows in the initial encounter. The gun's laying on the ground, right? The perpetrator sample apparently runs off, 
sample's DNA is on the trigger and also the handle of the gun? Correct. Correct, Your Honor. But that doesn't negate the fact that this in-court identification was overly suggestive. It that may is, suggest we shouldn't even be arguing about any of this because even if it were suggestive, it's all harmless. I disagree, Your Honor. There are explanations about how DNA could have arrived on that gun, and I don't think we can second-guess the, the, the fact finder in this case to assume they would have found guilt solely on that one piece of evidence. Were there if, multiple DNA uh, discoveries on the, on the handle and the trigger of the gun? No, Your Honor. Just his? He could not be. It could not be. Okay, the way we talk about DNA. Could not be, uh, yes, sir. But what I asked the court to focus on is specifically this one issue, which is that the both this out-of-court identification and the in-court identification should not have been allowed. And specifically, I want the court to think about the statements that the officer made to the victim in this case regarding the photo. This podcast is brought to you by Ben Glass Law, a national leader in long-term disability insurance claims. We help doctors, lawyers, entrepreneurs, CEOs, and other C-suite executives get paid for their long-term disability benefits. Visit us at benglasslaw.com or give us a call at 703-591-9829. Again, we've got a one single photo here, which is not per se admissible. But in, in showing him this photo, prior to even showing the photo, he says, hey, I think I've got an idea of who it might be. He lives in the area. Let me go. I'll come back. Comes back with the photo. He shows him this single photo. Does does might be? Is that significant as opposed to I think I know who it is? Well, I think either statement is suggestive. And I think when we look at one of the statements by the victim in this case and the way that he interpreted the memory of the officer's statement, I have a pretty good idea of who it was. That was the victim's memory. So then he's adding on at the back end. Of, but but he's, he's already said it's him. He said it. He's already said it's him there. It but that influence him to say it's him. It's him. Correct. But I believe it further taints any subsequent identifications of the defendant no, by, by adding on, hey, he, yeah, he's done some other stuff. Good job. You did right. It's got to be him. Tell me if I'm right or wrong about this. But in Perry, in Justice Ginsburg's opinion, I think it was an 8-1 opinion, she said that it's got to be the, the threshold question was suggestive. Let me see if I can get the exact site. Yeah, here it is. Both first due process concerns arise dot when used identification procedure that is both suggestive and unnecessary. Suggestive and unnecessary. But, but the the way the briefs are, we all just talking about the suggestive nature. I think this goes back to Justice Mann's question, perhaps unnecessary. Got to be unnecessary. You didn't have to do the lineup with the the clown picture or something like that. You didn't have to do that. You didn't have to do the in-person show up later. But when an officer arrives at a crime scene, it's necessary to try to figure out quickly what's going on. The kind of stuff we probably would not do three weeks later when we're, we're still working around trying to figure out who the guy is and we're doing lineups for the victim. Doesn't that factor in that it was reasonable for the cop to say, yeah, I think this is the guy. It's down the road, with this, this is, it fits all, everything I know about him. Why wouldn't we want cops to be able to do that? It was not necessary to make those comments. The officer could have shown the photo in a very neutral fashion. 
uh, without making the statements. Yeah, I think I have an idea of who it might be. He lives right over the way. He could have been him. Didn't have to make those statements. So I don't believe any of those statements, both before or after showing the photo, were necessary. If he had shown the photo in a more neutral fashion or had shown a couple of different photos, then... But the, I, but the test here is both suggestive. Correct. And unnecessary. So when you go back and say it's suggested, I'm still asking arguably, but this particular context where you're in a, a, a tight moment where you're in the very beginning of the investigation and the perpetrator is at large, maybe it is necessary. Again, Your Honor, the showing the photo may not have been suggested if done in the proper manner. The, the, what makes it suggestive in this case is the unnecessary commentary that the officer provided, essentially giving the victim uh, a sense uh, to believe, hey, I already have an idea of who this is, and giving him a sense of, hey, I'm a police officer. I know this guy. I know the community. I know more than you about this stuff. I know where he lives. This is the guy. That was the part that was unnecessary in this case. Do I recall correctly that some of the other officers remonstrated with the officer at the scene for how it was done? There were some questions uh, about that, Your Honor. Yes. I mean, that may go to what was the optimal police procedure. Yes, I believe there were some questions after the fact about was that the proper procedure. And just briefly, Your Honor, just to touch on the, the other five factors and biggers, which, of course, the court has duly noted, just because it was suggested doesn't mean it's barred. We have to look at the other five factors. And I believe when we look at all five factors, even though a few of them may tip in favor of the Commonwealth, the totality tips in the favor of the defendant. This was first the opportunity to view the criminal. This was an extremely brief encounter. We've already talked about that. Five to 10 seconds, he's focused on the gun barrel. It's at night, we have a face obscured, a very difficult uh, identification. Yes, the witness had a degree of attention, but again, the attention is on a gun barrel for five to 10 seconds. Yes, there's no doubt he saw the victim in this tussle as they fell to the ground, saw him running away, could identify his clothing and his build. That doesn't mean he can identify his facial features. The accuracy of the witness description. Again, yes, clothing is accurate, height's accurate, build approximately accurate, but we have many other factors that are not accurate. Describes him as the skinny white guy, as a Caucasian, and even when the officer suggests to him, hey, I think it's, I think it's a Hispanic guy. No, didn't look like it to me. That sounds like he wasn't being suggested. The cop saying he's a Hispanic. All you have to do if he was being easily misled is say, yeah, you're probably right. I but agree with did. that, Your Honor, but at this stage of the analysis, we're only looking at the accuracy of his description. The suggestive nature, again, is the first step, and at this point, we're just looking at the actual. I agree, they all blend together in the analysis. But th doesn't that go to your point? Getting all the other factors right, but missing on that one, given that he's wearing the hoodie, he's wearing the hat, and wearing the mask. So we're doing racial features from just this. Right. In some circumstances, missing on race would be a huge thing. Here, because of what you argue for the rest of it, he's looking at almost a slit. All he can see are the eyes and eyebrows. Yes, Your Honor. And again, we've got a, a build which is not unique. Clothing, which is not unique in today's society, a hoodie, dark clothing, that's all we're working off of here. So that alone, I would argue, was not enough to make a good identification. Thank you, Your Honors. Thank you.
Good morning, Your Honor. May it please the Court. Ken Baldessari on behalf of the Commonwealth. Before I begin my argument today, I do have to fall on my sword in reviewing my materials last night and reviewing my brief and reviewing some of the case law. I believe I erred in my description of Simmons versus United States in talking about that as a single photo lineup. That is not the case in Simmons, and I deeply regret the error, but I wanted to make the Court aware of that. Turning to focusing on the first assignment of error with regard to the motion to suppress and I would begin by pointing out, obviously, there's this un unduly suggestive aspect. And as Justice Kelsey indicated, Perry talks about also the unnecessary, being unnecessary. Turning to, I would focus more on the Biggers factors, given, start off with the Biggers factors here. And I believe the Court of Appeals was correct in its analysis of the five factors. As my opposing counsel has already conceded, factors four and five are uh, in favor of the Commonwealth. We have an individual here who expressed zero doubt when shown a photo. We have basically less than an hour uh, between the actual crime and when the, the uh, photo was shown to him. So both of those factors, I think, weigh heavily in the, uh, the Commonwealth's favor. With regard to the remaining three factors, the opportunity of the witness to view the criminal at the time of the crime, I understand opposing counsel is obviously focusing on this five to 10 second aspect of it, but I think as Justice Russell was talking about, we have an individual who's able to determine that the uh, alleged firearm is in fact not a firearm, it's a, likely a BB gun. Uh, he's able to identify the distinctive features of his uh, big brown eyes, as I believe the phrase he used repeatedly. In addition, he's able to get his height, his weight, his build, his age, basically almost, he would he would clean up as a carnival barker. Um, all of those show, I think, again, way in favor of the Commonwealth. His degree of attention, again, the factor that he, the fact that he is able to see these things, get his, accurately describe his clothing, things of that nature, also show that he had a, a high degree of attention. And then the accuracy, obviously, the only thing that is, is off is that he described him as basically a skinny white male. It turns out that he is someone of a, a biracial. I think it's a situation here where the findings of facts by the trial court that we have to defer to still weigh in favor of the Commonwealth here. We have a situation where it was at night, but we have this basically LED lights coming from the, the warehouse or the garage that are illuminating the surrounding area. You know, he made pointing, uh, uh, he made clear we had this body cam footage where the victims are facing away basically from the garage, but we still have a clear indication of what their faces look like on the body cam footage. So the fact that this light is here and where the, this individual, the perpetrator is facing that direction just shows that we, he has the ability to see him. And also the fact that, I apologize, lost my train of thought, but just one moment. The fact that the, um, the trial court did make a finding of fact quote that he was light skinned, I think does show that his complexion and things of that nature with regard, and if there's no questions with regard to the suppression issue, with regard to the sufficiency aspect of it, again, the identification and the the DNA and mixture profile, as well as the uh, true allele casework, I think all support the findings of, of the trial court and finding Mr. Sample guilty. One thing I did want to talk about was obviously there is a, a long series of cases out of the Court of Appeals, beginning, I believe, with Smallwood versus Commonwealth and Brown and Cuffey that have all been decided over the last 30 years, which kind of incorporate the Biggers factors into the sufficiency analysis. And I think it was touched upon a little bit in the Walker opinion that came out recently from this court that we 
look at we ha the trial is where we decide things and the, the basically Im imposing this higher burden of analysis instead of the standard of review that is typical for sufficiency i think is incorrect and, and that this court should it reach that issue should overturn those uh, series of cases as wrongly decided if there are no further questions i would rest on my brief and ask this court to affirm the court of appeals ruling on that last point to clarify the, the sufficiency standard we use for all fact-finding generally should apply to suppression hearings as any other kind of hearing, including a trial, if it involves the resolution of contested fact. Correct so far? I believe so, Your Honor. Yes. And then the second point is when a motion to suppress is denied pre-trial, our cases say from our court that the evidence at trial is now open to the to analysis and the factual findings made by whoever is making the findings or juries or the judges play a role in addressing whether or not the motion should have been granted pretrial anyway, but not vice versa. You mean not taking the facts from the motions? If the motion to, motion to suppress is denied, the defendant can't say well, something came up at trial unless there's a motion to reconsider the motion to suppress, but not in the opposite direction. If something came up at trial that reaffirms what the trial court did factually at a pretrial motion to suppress, then that is perfectly available. We have three published opinions saying that. Yes, sir. You agree with that? that we can incorporate the evidence that comes out at the trial and in and analyzing the evidence that the motion to suppress yes in the situation where the motion to suppress was denied pre-trial but yes. not when it was granted so basically you're if the, obviously if the motion to suppress was granted and the it would be, come in. Would be the commonwealth's appeal and obviously the, it would be the, still in the light most favorable to the prevailing party which would in this case be the defendant so it's always going to be that in both directions in other words, let me make it clear so, so that I'm understanding what you're saying and we're speaking the same sufficiency test, mm -hmm. to, no matter who wins the fact finding, that is the overall test. But if it's a pretrial motion to suppress and it's denied pretrial and there's evidence later at trial that could have been used pretrial, but it's not wasn't used because no one knew it, the defendant can renew the motion at trial and get that evidence used but if they don't renew the motion it's not available on appeal later to second guess a pretrial motion in which that evidence was never presented pretrial yes sir. but the opposite doesn't work when you're affirming a pretrial denial because the evidence at trial then under our precedent can be used because it it ratifies what was done earlier I, I, if, I, if I'm correctly following your train I believe that's the case your honor fair enough thank you Thank you, Calvin. Have any time left? All right, counsel, your time's up. The proceeding has been a production of Ben Glass Law, a Fairfax, Virginia-based personal injury and long-term disability law firm. For a free evaluation of your claim, visit us at benglasslaw.com or call us at 703-591-9829. The proceeding has been a production of Ben Glass Law, a Fairfax, Virginia-based personal injury and long-term disability law firm. For a free evaluation of your claim, visit us at benglasslaw.com or call us at 703-591-9829.